between our seed round and our Series A, at some point we looked at the bank account, we had 45 days worth of cash. And I signed a term sheet to essentially attract venture debt, 1.1 million. And about two weeks before running out of cash, they did more due diligence on the company and they were surprised that we had so little cash, obviously. And they decided not to invest. And so I had two weeks worth of cash and I had like how many, I don't know, 20, maybe 30, 35 employees that I need to pay and like a business to run. And we had like two weeks worth of cash. And I was like, oh shit. (laughs) That's Francis Davidson, the CEO and co-founder of Sonder. This episode of Made at McGill is brought to you by the McGill Dobson Center for Entrepreneurship. Our mission is to inspire, teach, and develop world-class entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Mo O'Keefe, and I'm the editor-in-chief here. We're going to veer off from our usual narrative-driven format. This is unedited audio from a conversation I had with Francis when he visited McGill in 2018. And the subject matter spans across the founding of Sonder, his influences, including Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos. He also talks about how building Sonder and living in San Francisco has changed his worldview. He talks about using VR to reshape education and the four major activities he does to continue to develop his skills as an entrepreneur. Francis was an economics and philosophy student at McGill when he founded the company in a basement. When he got the opportunity to go build the company in San Francisco years later, he hadn't graduated yet, but he knew that he could always get a diploma later. And building this company was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. On his LinkedIn profile, he writes, jokingly, at least I think, six credits left, maybe in 2025? Saunder is a tech-enabled hospitality company that provides boutique living spaces for short- and long-term stays around the world. Think Airbnb, but with the high standards, standardization, and the concierge services of a hotel. So, local living, but hotel quality. They operate in 20 cities around the world and are rapidly expanding. In August of 2018, Forbes revealed that Sonder had raised $135 million to date, making it the biggest startup ever to come out of the Miguel Dobson Center for Entrepreneurship. And it all started because Francis needed to find someone to sublet his apartment to in the summer of 2012. What's interesting about that story in retrospect is that Sonder, originally called Flatbook, had not even made it to the finals of the McGill-Dobson Cup. But Francis decided to keep building it anyway. He let the results speak for themselves. And here we are. Were you always interested in entrepreneurship and business, or is that... No, not at all. Not at all. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, like, I don't know, um, thinking back to when you were young, wh- wh- what were you interested in? I, um, I was a sports jock until the age 16, okay. at which point I had a dramatic shift towards uh, trying to understand everything about the world. And I'd never read a book before I was 16, and okay. this French literature prof of mine um, decided that, um, or I, I went to him because I didn't understand, like, a bunch of words I was reading in this book and he was like oh, I mean, your vocabulary is such an elementary level and like what, what the hell are you doing like you're in like you know last year of high school and I was like oh I'm gonna fucking show you <laughs> I'm gonna show you that I'm like not I don't have ele- I'm like what, well, what can I do about it and he's like you're gonna have to start reading so I just did a, book, a list of like 10, 10 subjects I wanted to get familiar with starting with the big bang all the way to kind of you know modern history 
and uh, and, and a bunch of other of other topics, and I just started reading them, and I just found that world completely fascinating. And my I grew a particular interest in philosophy. You know, one of my uncles is actually a scholar in kind of philosophy and religions. And he gave me this book called The World of Sophie, which is a kind of oh, yeah. walks through. Yeah, you've heard yeah, about this? I, yeah, I've read it for one of my courses. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so I read that book and I just, I was like, damn, I, I want to know more about this stuff. Like, this is really fascinating. I, I don't understand three quarters of it, but like, let, let me dive in. And uh, I, was, I was just completely passionate with, uh, with philosophy in particular. Um, I also had um, kind of interest in, in mathematics and I loved solving problems in my economic class. I didn't see Jeff. So I was like, ah, I'm going to like challenge myself on both kind of the linguistic side. My English wasn't phenomenal either, so like going to Anglophone University would be like a you know a, a big a, a, an interesting challenge, and then uh, and I want to challenge myself kind of on the mathematics side and do the like most rigorous program I could find, which was the honors econ program here at McGill. Oh. Uh, so so the philosophy plus honors econ like with a mathematically intense one, and I hadn't done calculus in CJEP, so I did it over the summer. I did like Calc one, Calc two, and algebra. Okay. Um, so I was interested in that stuff. Yeah. And I wanted to be a scholar. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to do a PhD in philosophy or in linguistics. Uh, or in economics, and I, I, I just really loved studying. Which is, I, I wasn't gonna ask a question today, like which courses did you? I was yeah. like, all, they were all great. <laughs> you know, I wish I, you know, I know I don't wish I stayed for longer because I really love what I'm doing now. But at the same time, uh, studying and reading and becoming more knowledgeable about the world is just a great way to spend time. Like it's really amazing. Yeah. yeah. And what, what kind of student life were you leading? Like besides school, like what else were you doing with your time? Um, I had a, an apartment with a couple of friends, a couple of Quebecer friends from Gatineau, and like we just. That house was just like a place where there was a bunch of dinners and parties and like it was, uh, but it was, it was uh, for our age, like abnormally, abnormally sophisticated. <laughs> it's like you'd walk up there and there would be like this put up, like this kind of, you know, um, you know, this, this like sophisticated, like three course meal that we would like, you know, and, and, uh, but we didn't take ourselves that seriously, but it was kind of, it was kind of fun to to host people over and, and just kind of bond over like uh, food and spending time. Also, I guess we had no money to go out, so yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to spend time. And I'm not the kind to just like play beer pong and chug Coors Light. So yeah, that, that's probably, I read a lot and then I spent time with my friends in that way. And then very soon I started working on the business. Yeah, so, so then what happened? How did you end up, how did that end up happening? Yeah, I mean, the story I say is true. Like, I was just like, oh shit, I'm trying to sell up my place. It doesn't work, I'm gonna go and, um, and, and and try to see if this idea could work out. Yeah, I, I don't want to like make you repeat too much, but basically you were you were playing blackjack. Uh, you were you were blackjack working. Dealer, yeah. You were dealing as a blackjack dealer. Yeah. Um, where was this? That was this in Gatineau. Yeah. Yeah, and then you had to you wanted to move back, but you were stuck in a lease. Yes, I know. So it, essentially, I was uh, the summer before starting the guild. I was working as a blackjack dealer in Gatineau. Then I went here for two semesters in the summer. My plan was to go back to get my blackjack job okay. over in Getsno. And that's when I looked into subletting my place. My other two roommates were also planning on leaving. Okay. So uh, that's how it worked. But I ended up staying in Montreal, never going back to Getsno. Yeah. Thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how, did you, how did you meet Lucas? Or how did you know him? Uh, he, <clears throat> his girlfriend at the time was in the Honors Econ program with me. Oh. I invited her for dinner at my place. She brought him. And then we hit it off. Okay, that's cool. And what set of events or key realizations about your, your customers uh, led you to the vision that you now have for Sonder, which is local living, living hotel service? Um, I think um, with most, most things, uh, almost cliche, but people take the world as it is for granted and almost in a 
in a way that is kind of um, fixed and that it's hard to imagine. For instance, like how some people 50 years ago might have thought about how the world would end up being today in pretty much every industry, you know. And right now we're like, God, there's these hotels, you know. Yeah. And the hotels, I mean, they cost about this much money when you go. And the room's about this size. And it's at this part of town. And you got to go to the front desk to get your key. And like, that's just, that's how it is. That's hotels, you know. And um, uh, so I think rather than thinking about uh, a cust- like uh, asking customers and getting to know customers really well, I just ask myself, what could the world look like if your hotel was fucking awesome, <laughs> you know, and was just great? Uh, it would be bigger. It'd be anywhere you want. It'd be really well designed. It would be flexible. You'd have a studio, but you'd have a six-bedroom place, depending on whether you're fam- with family or with friends or by yourself on traveling. Like, um, and uh, it would be way cheaper. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much Sonder. It's yeah. like a really nice, beautiful spaces that are, you know, feel more homely. That are way cheaper. They're anywhere in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, like that's something that people it's it's very similar to how uh, Jeff Bezos thinks about uh, kind of uh, the core tenets of kind of the value proposition of Amazon it's like cheaper and faster and more selection mm-hmm. and it's not that you don't have to ask people really you just know like what is there going to be a day where people are going to be like oh, shit I wish I got my stuff shipped and like it took longer for my goods to arrive you know, or yeah. will people ever say like, "I wish I paid more money for like that windshield wiper I just bought online"? Like, it's obvious that they're gonna right. So if you say like, "Do you prefer to have more choice in where you can be in a city, or just want to be in the hotel downtown core?" It's like I don't need to speak to customers to know that. Like the choices, it's we, we know neighborhoods are great uh, yeah. to, to 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 experience. And like, do you want to pay more or less? Obviously, there's an answer to that question. Do you want a space that like feels like it's sucking the life out of you and it's ugly and it's the same copy based everywhere, or do you want a place that's really well designed and thinks into consideration of the architecture and where this, where kind of the history of the city and its neighborhood and has real art on the walls? Like, it's I don't need to ask any customers about that. And then it turns out that in the reviews they say that all oh, this is good, but like first you just have to conceive of a world that is significantly different than what it is right now. It's time for a quick break. Usually at this point in a podcast, you'd hear an advertisement, but instead I'll read you a joke from Francis Davidson's LinkedIn profile, which he (laughs) lists under his education. An astronomer, a physicist, and a mathematician were holidaying in Scotland. Glancing from a train window, they observed a black sheep in the middle of a field. How interesting, observed the astronomer. All Scottish sheep are black. To which the physicist responded, No, no, some Scottish sheep are black. The mathematician gazed heavenward in supplication and then intoned, In Scotland, there exists at least one field containing at least one sheep, at least one side of which is black. Now, back to the conversation. Now, um, you, you, you described this a, a part of um, your story where basically you were going through the spreadsheets figuring out all the unit economics and it reminded me a lot of when uh, Elon Musk was coming back from Russia and like figured out all of like what would be needed to build a rocket and he <laughs> did it himself and yeah. I was like what how do you think you've developed this you know first principle thinking um, how I've developed it I'm not sure I can answer that question uh, I know that um, the value of business is the present value of free cash flows. Have you heard this? No. Uh, this thing. So when you in finance, when you try and value the like any financial asset, it could be a stock, it could be like 
a bond, it could be gold, it could be cryptocurrencies, it could be my shirt. You just look at essentially how, how much money is it going to generate into the future. Okay. Um, and the further out in the future, the less it's worth. Yeah. Um, that's the ba- like the basics of kind of about the present value. And so the, the val- like the value of a business is essentially just a financial equation. So whenever you est- like you're trying to figure out, and they teach you that in finance. Like uh, so, whenever you're trying to figure out whether an idea has merit, you just have essentially to estimate what are the odds that it actually generates a significant amount of cash flow in the future. Okay. And 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 to know that you have to look at unit economics and scale. So you have to be like, how much am I, I going to make per shirt I sell? Mm-hmm. And how much am I going to sell? How many shirts am I going to sell? So you look at total market size, look at market penetration mm-hmm. assumptions, and then you look at unit economics. And that gives you kind of a, somewhat of a picture of how profitable and reasonable, like how big a business can be. And, or it could just be an equation that needs to be validated. Like, uh, you know, the cost of shirts is $10 fully shipped to So in order for this business to work in this economics, you need to have a customer acquisition cost of less than $50, an average sale price of $40, you know, and, and, and kind of just understand the, 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 the fundamental levers of, of the business. So whenever I hear kind of these stories about other people like speaking about their businesses, I like the first thing I do to evaluate whether the idea might have merit is just like, what do I need to believe about the fundamental financial equations uh, in order to know whether this business can exist or not, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what are the current economics, which could be some sort of indication of whether it's going to work as they scale. Okay. Uh, do you have? Can you tell me about an, a, a fond memory you have from the early days of Sunder? Honestly, it's been a uh, it's been a, a thrill pretty much throughout. Um, um, I think the first million in sales, like that number, was just insane to me. Yeah. Like that I could just go and like do this thing and make a million dollars and like I just like saw it come in like the bank like revenue come in the bank account and it was just like, to the, like the number of million at that point meant a lot. Like now it's like <laughs> it's junk. Like it's a it's it's a, it's nothing. But um, but at that point to go from like you know someone that's worked hourly jobs and whose best job was a blackjack dealer to then just like see that the business I made a million dollars in sales was kind of. Uh, incredible yeah and what did you make the what did you make of that like what did that mean to you no i was like that's cool wow okay. <laughs> you, you can actually this it's possible and then just moved on yeah. okay i'm not one to really uh look back on stuff yeah. and like appreciate it very much i'm not one to be fearful of things in the future i'm very kind of present focused so i don't get excited about stuff nor do i get kind of anxious about them it's a bit weird what about the future yeah, same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we do this company event every year. Everyone flies into this place. There's two days worth of events. Everyone's got to go fucking berserk for that because it's the coolest thing. And like, it's just, we eat out in restaurants and like we get drunk together. There's awards and like there's sessions with people and like, it's like, it's really great. It is actually objectively like amazing. And like right before everyone's just super excited. I'm like, how are you feeling? And I'm like, you know, just, <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, you know, normal, like I'll enjoy it in the, when that happens. But like, yeah, I think it's actually this is might be related to why I'm okay being an entrepreneur because this is related to risk aversion. Okay. Um, because uh, if I if I if I kind of was worried significantly about the prospects of future things happening that are bad, then I probably would tailor down kind of my ambitions and the the, the, the amount of exposure I, I have to risk. Okay, so by almost like this living in the moment has almost you you've debiased yourself almost. Or just become less scared of negative outcomes. Because the thing is that people 
um, the anticipation of something negative is probably even more painful than the thing itself. If I tell you I'm going to slap you in the face and then you, and just for an hour I don't do it, like that is significantly, it's probably more painful than just getting slapped and getting over with right now, you know? So, um, so people are so fearful it's not going to work out that it causes a lot of stress and the stress is what gets them old and they shed gray hair faster and all that kind of stuff. But if you're actually not stressed, then it's less painful to do things that might have an adverse impact so you're more likely to do them. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, now, can you think of a, a low point from those days when, I don't know, things were going wrong, and but then it actually set you up for later success? We, between our seed round and our Series A, at some point we looked at the bank account, we had 45 days worth of cash, and I signed a term sheet to essentially attract venture debt, 1.1 million, and about two weeks before running out of cash, they did more due diligence on the company and they were surprised that we had so little cash, obviously, and they decided not to invest. And so I had two weeks worth of cash and I had like how many, I don't know, 20, maybe 30, 35 employees that I need to pay and like a business to run and we had like two weeks worth of cash. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> uh, and we managed to piece it together and we found like in, like some of our investors put a million bucks and that was enough until we raised our 10 million Series A. Okay. But just running out of money is the, probably the one thing that, uh, or being close to running out of money, and that's why fundraising is so challenging, because you usually just go out fundraising when you see that the cash is running out. Yeah. That is, that is, like, that will have a profound emotional impact on me. Because it's like you see failure right in front. And, like, if things don't go wrong, if the world doesn't align, if there's something that happens in the news and people, like, just freeze their capital, if there's a little, you know... I've been lucky multiple times because we could have died on many, like a few of these fundraising rounds of things that worked out a bit differently. And uh, has that changed the way you approach fundraising in the, like after that? Yeah, that's why now I'm taking a much more careful view of how we use capital in order to be cash flow positive faster. Even though we could grow faster if we were less careful, um, I want to be, um, I want to, I'm more into kind of, you know, building a cash flow generating profitable business despite growing fast that's more important so I focus more on efficiency and being more kind of frugal than I than I would just because of the fundraising department if I knew that I had access to capital markets in a way that is less risky um, then uh, I would probably kind of grow grow faster and take bigger bets right now but but still I think there's a there's a there's a balance to strike and uh, uh, it might not be entirely bad but that's that, that's been the effect on my decision making Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how has your worldview changed as you move um, from Montreal to San Francisco? Um, I now have the belief that the world can be shaped in significantly different ways because a small group of people think that it can and then they just make it happen. Like, there's too many examples in history of that happening and now I have the belief that I might be one of those people that might be able to do that at some point. It's time for another quick break. Here is another joke from the education section on Francis's LinkedIn profile. Three logicians walk into a bar. The bartender asks, do you all want a drink? The first logician says, I don't know. The second logician says, I don't know. The third logician says, yes. At this point in the conversation, my microphone ran out of storage space. Now, I'm lucky I was also using my phone to record as a backup, but forgive me because the audio quality is a little bit lower. Anyway, let's get back to the conversation. 
you know, and it changes everything. It's like uh, it turn it changes complaints about stuff and laments into opportunities. It's like, oh man, this uh, cities like they don't build enough housing, and housing prices are going up in San Francisco. It's a big problem. And one bedroom costs thirty five hundred dollars a month, and the two bedroom forty five hundred on average. That's for kind of kind of shitty place. Um, so it's a really big problem. Salaries have to be much higher. Companies burn more cash. All that kind of stuff. Very bad for society, especially for people that don't make the, that make a low income. Mm -hmm. And so I could be like bitching about that all day, or I could be like, hmm, what would it look like if I were to try and build a new city at some point, and just like buy a like shitty plot of land somewhere and just like found a new like just start a new city and just get businesses to move there and get people to move there and make it really cool. Like how what that what would that city look like? How would transit work? Would there be cars there? Uh, just like you just start imagining all these things like. What is an amazing city? What could that be? And it's just fun to just think about all this kind of stuff. So the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco is very much, um, I mean, there's a lot of complaining, of course, but there's a, a, a small subset of, there's a subset of people that you don't see in very many places that think in ways like that. You know, they just, you know, any, any, any hardship in life essentially is a, is a potential opportunity to create something that, that will have some impact. Okay. And you've been hanging out with these people, right? And they've influenced you and you've influenced them? In some ways, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. okay, now you were 19 when you started building Sonder. So that's a, that's a crucial point in your life where you're... Um, like, yeah, the, the, the thing most people talk about is you don't have risks, blah, blah, blah. You do whatever you want. But I'm interested in, like, the fact that at that age, you're also building your sense of identity and, you know, how you fit into the world. So I'm curious, how is building Sonder, you know, from the ground up, influenced your your sense of who you are? Hmm. It's a, it's a very uh, unusual and interesting question. <laughs> Nicely well done for digging that one up. <laughs> um, I think um, I see mostly myself as some somewhat of a kind of scholarly uh, kind of intellectual and uh, and people don't see me that way anymore. And so, but I know who I am, and so it doesn't really matter. And I quite, actually, I think entrepreneurship fits me quite, quite fits my character quite well in many ways. But um, uh, yeah, I it's it's definitely completely overhauled other people's perception of me. Um, and also, I'm surprised this like how little of my time I'm spending reading and doing things that I thought was valuable maybe six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Now it's completely changed. I'm just like, I'm working for the man. Like I'm just a big capitalist trying to make hundreds of millions of dollars. And so that's, that's changed. But I found that, I, but I find that appealing. I, I actually think that I was the, the naive guy before and now I'm doing the really important stuff. Um, so, um, I don't know. I'm not sure I have a really good angle for how to answer that question. Um, it's a, I, I'm hoping that it's going to be a continuous thing, actually. I, I'm hoping that I won't just be like, ah, here's who I am. I'm done. You fucking deal with it. Like, I just, I want to think about new ways to live my life and spend my time, like, uh, hopefully for, you know, decades to come. I, I would love to just be in a constant state of, like, kind of exploration and discovery. Okay. Now, do you think, because I don't think there necessarily has to be a misalignment with this new capitalistic version of yourself compared to the other guy. Yeah. Maybe now you've just found it like a different way to execute. Yeah, on that. yeah I think so. And I'm also <clears throat> quite left, leftward leaning and so it's odd to think that I'm firing people because I want to make more like profit in a way. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean one big driver for me actually is uh, 
if I if I do become like really filthy rich, I think I'll be able to actually have have a small dent in some people that are ex- like in really shitty conditions. Like mm-hmm. I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to like live quite modestly and to and to you know I, I think Bill Gates has done outstanding things on that front. He's really a role model from that perspective in terms of like using his intellect and his capabilities and organization and building and his capital to just like be like okay, what are the biggest problems that like we could actually help alleviate? Okay like ch- children mortality in these 10 countries let's go for it malaria there let's go for it and he just like actually like he tracks the metrics has dashboards has owners runs it like a business and delivers results when it comes to improving on like wow that's actually incredible it's like the most leftward leaning thing you could do in terms of impact just like become as fucking rich as you can and then after that use like all these skills you've required into building organizations to like help people that are in need mm-hmm. pretty exceptional any particular causes you're um, interested in? Education. I think <clears throat> what would school like would look like if you if you had to re- completely reinvent it. If you didn't have lectures, but there was um, like incredible uh, um, kind of talks that were given by subject matter experts that were potentially in VR. Maybe maybe you're like learning a new language and you're like you're learning Italian and you're in an Italian family dinner in the 1950s and everyone's speaking Italian around you and then there's some new vocabulary words that are introduced and the ones that you haven't heard before there's a little bubble that pops up with a translation and you can pause you can rewind and you learn language by being immersed I mean just think about everything that's possible when it comes to acquiring knowledge and acquiring also ways in which to think and just how the curriculum of education can be rethought how the spaces in which children are put in could be reconceived so that there's less bullying, so there's more social integration. How do we get people to learn how to work with others in a collaborative way and so that as a group they can deliver results? And like there's just so many things that I'm shocked societies and teach children. I'm found I'm building a culture that essentially teaches those tools to people so that they can work well with others and avoid like common mistakes in, in thought. Uh, but I, I would I would love to completely like kind of revamp the way in which uh, in which education is uh, is happening, like its curriculum, the medium that's used to deliver it, how feedback is performed, which kind of professors we have, the physical buildings in which schools are located. Like I would love to revamp all of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you have a conversation with Lucas at some point that has shaped your approach to business? Uh, all the time, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lucas has just <clears throat> brought so many things that were game changing. His emphasis on culture was quite precocious. Like he was thinking about culture and values, who were much smaller than most organizations would at that size. Um, so, and he's also a, an extremely independent thinker, which means that like he'll just uncover things that we've taken for granted for a long time and just uh, articulate them with with astounding clarity. And so, um, yeah. But for culture, is probably the best example. Can you think of a particular time? Um, well, so we were in Founder Fuel, uh, and there was this person that was doing a presentation on culture, and then Lucas referred to it as corporate culture. He's like, oh yeah, well, what's what is what makes a good corporate culture? And then the guy's like, actually, just culture. Don't say corporate culture. <laughs> it's just culture. And so he knew absolutely nothing about the subject, and then just started reading books about it. He started in, instructing himself on it, and he was like, ah, Francis, we need those values. We need this book, this document called How We Work that says how we're going to communicate with each other inside the organization and what our org chart is like and like how our business is organized and like how we use Asana in order to do tasks and all this kind of stuff. Uh, he, he kind of built that infrastructure. Um, and it's critical, it's like one of the most important things to execute well. Mm-hmm. 
Now that reminds me of uh, sort of what you were talking about, about your approach to learning. And this is my last question. How have you been able to learn so fast? And uh, what kind of activities do you think have been the, giving you the most um, return on investment in terms of your learning? Yeah. So I think I, I described it quickly during the session. It's working a lot and, and being kind of almost obsessive about like cracking the code and it is, it is just a, a, a big kind of scientific game in my view building a business it's just like there are many important decisions to take which business model will you choose do you enter this market or not like you know, just think about pretty much any business decision uh, you know should I you know incorporate this slide in this pitch deck or not like there's just a series of small puzzles to solve um, and so dedicating a lot of time to solve as many problems as possible is certainly necessary in order to accelerate learning Second one is um, uh, kind of extracting information from people that are really good. And uh, so I, you know, I had a series of mentors that I had some sort of specialty for. Like, okay, you're my mentor that's helping me with this stuff. I go to their office, I see how it works. Like, uh, just kind of instruct myself that way and present problems to them, see how they're thinking about it and kind of incorporate that learning. Which also meant that most mentors ended up being useful for me for about a year to two years. Tops. Like, after two years, like, it's, they, like, I... I've, I've, I've absorbed what I needed to absorb and now I need to find a new, like a new set of mentors. And also the business has become larger so the problems are different in nature and so I need to find people with different sweet spots in terms of organization stage. Um, and, um, and then the third one is, uh, yeah, reading. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think there's, uh, there's probably uh, 10 or so books that are, that, are, that, are, that are mostly the biographies of great entrepreneurs. Like to me, the uh, strongest entrepreneurs alive are, are uh, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, um, and uh, Peter Thiel, and maybe uh, Reed Hastings on Netflix, and Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I think those are like all really stellar entrepreneurs. So there's books written about most of them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so just seeing their story and hearing how they built their organization and how they put their culture together and all that kind of stuff is... Uh, has been kind of a really helpful instruction. And then, oh yeah, I didn't mention coaching, executive coaching, huge. So this, uh, this is something I started right after Series A. So I've been doing it for the last two years and this is like this, he does executive coaching for young CEOs of venture-backed growth companies. Like that's all he does. Wow. 40% of his clients are Forbes 30 under 30. Yeah. That's a track record. Yeah. That's all I got for you, man. That's all. Good. Thank you. Those uh, that's those sort of meaningful questions you have there. Yeah, thank you. Hey, it's Mo. I hope you enjoyed that story. If you want easier access to upcoming episodes of Made at McGill, I recommend you subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you use. Also, do you have a wantrepreneur in your life? Maybe your Uncle Bill, who's always talking about his grand business ideas. Consider this. Find one episode in this podcast that you think could give them a slight push, the little nudge that they need to begin their journey as a maker, and have them listen to that episode. And if Uncle Bill ends up turning into the next Bill Gates, who changes the world and along the way becomes a genius billionaire philanthropist, hey, you can take all the credit. Thanks for listening.